Welcome everybody as we continue our study in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to try to cover two chapters a day. In fact, we're going to cover two chapters. There's no way to divide these up. And we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5. We're actually going to start with the last verse of chapter 3. And we'll end with the first verse of chapter 6. And uh, this is a, an incredibly rich passage of scripture. And I hope you're as blessed by it as I have been studying for this teaching. I call this teaching living in the 99% world. Uh, The rabbis talk about the 1% world, which is this physical realm in which we live. But then the 99% world is the world we can't see. That's the spiritual realm. And we tend to get those backwards. We tend to think that this is the 99% and that's just spiritual. That's just kind of uh, iffy and airy and not necessarily real. And it's just the other way around. This world is over in a blink. Life is short, but the world, the 99% world, is eternal. Here, there's suffering and pain. There, there's none. Here, there's limitation. There, there's no limitation. Here, there's death and dying. There, there's no death and dying. Everything here is just very temporal, very short, and tends to be painful. But in the 99% world, That's the world we look forward to or should be looking forward to. And Paul talks a lot about that world in these two chapters. So the question is, where are you investing your life? And what is the world that you really consider home? And are you learning to live in the 99% world more and more? I think one of the, uh, not only one of the curses of sin in this world is that we slowly age and then die, I think one of the blessings is also the fact that we age and die. Because as our bodies age and weaken and get a little slower, our 99% world should be becoming more glorious, more bright, stronger, more powerful. So I challenge you to examine yourselves. How are you doing? What world do you live in the most? So, Without further ado, let's get right into our study. We're going to begin with the last verse of chapter 3. Now, in chapter 3, Paul uses the word glory ten times there in the middle, but then he mentions it a couple more times here in the last verse. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Master, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's referencing the story of Moses on Mount Sinai and when he spent 40 days and nights with God and he came down from the mountain with the two tablets in his hands and his face was glowing and he didn't even know it. Why did his face glow? He had spent those days in God's presence. And Paul says, we need to look with an unveiled face, an unveiled mind, into the face of Messiah and see the glory of God. And just as Moses did not know that his face glowed, if we spend time in Messiah's presence seeking his face, there should be a glow about us. Not that we'll glow physically, but that there should be an inner light that kind of leaks out our eyes so that people, when they meet us, they'll recognize that they're in the presence of someone who spends time in that 99% world. So we want to be 
unveiled. We want our truth to go forth. We want our lights to shine as Messiah challenged us. So let's continue now in chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He says not only do we not use cunning and tamper the word, but we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There are two things here that people in professional ministry can fall into. Paul says we refuse to practice cunning. And I think we've all seen ministries and maybe encountered workers in the ministry who use cunning to try to manipulate people to their point of view, to adopt their theology or to control them, maybe to join their ministry and and always money is at the bottom of it. And uh, we're not to do that. Paul says, I refuse to do that. And a true worker of God should always refuse to do that, to use cunning or to tamper with God's word. Two interesting Greek words lie behind these. The word for cunning that is used here is panurgia, panurgia. Paul uses it again over in chapter 11, verse 3. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his panurgia, his craftiness, his cunning, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Messiah. So, the enemy is the one who uses cunning, not us. But also in in Luke 20, verse 23, uh, Yeshua, it says, he detected their, their cunning, their trickery, and he said to them, you know, as the Pharisees tried to entrap him in different questions. Also, Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the cunning, the parnugia of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So, not only should we not practice this, we should be careful of those who do and be aware. And the second word, the word to tamper with God's word, is a little more complicated. The, the, the noun is dolos. And uh, the verb that's used here is deloa, delao, rather. And you find this several places. Um, it talks about how the Pharisees used stealth, they used dolos, to try to, uh, to capture Yeshua and to kill him. But also in John 147, when Yeshua sees Nathaniel coming, he says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no dolos, no deceit. So we need to be careful how we use God's word. And we also need to be careful of our motives. And um, I must confess, there have been temptations, especially in my less mature years, when I would resort to cunning to try to convince someone of seeing things my way. And, um, and too often, we, we see people trying to build God's kingdom using the enemy's tactics. Beware of this. And let's never resort to the enemy's tactics 
for promoting God's kingdom. Let's use God's principles for doing this. And then we pick it up, excuse me, in verse 3. And even if our good news is veiled, and here he's referring again to the veil that Moses had over his face, if our gospel is veiled, if it's blocked so people can't see it, it is veiled to those, (coughs) excuse me, who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has <clears throat> blinded the minds of the apistos, the unbelieving, those without faith, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Yeshua the Messiah as master with ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light, Genesis 1-3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Yeshua the Messiah. An interesting phrase there, the good news of the glory of Messiah. Now, we know that Yeshua and the apostles preached, they proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And Paul, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, lays out his good news that he's been given to share with the world. But here he's referring to a particular facet of the good news, which is the good news of the glory of Messiah. What is that good news? How does he describe that? And we'll discover what that good news is, that facet of the gospel, at the end of chapter 5. So that's why we have to do 5 today as well as 4. And by the way, when he said earlier that we're being transformed by the, uh, into the same image from degree of glory to another at the end of chapter 3, The way we become transformed is by seeking and beholding the glory of Yeshua. This is something we need to constantly pour our energies into. It's too easy to be distracted by the work we need to do when that's important, by the studies we need to do, by um, all the other responsibilities we have, good things. But there's something we cannot afford to miss out on. And that's to seek the face of Messiah, the glory that's found there. That is what is transformative in our lives. We must come to know him personally. And how can we call ourselves believers, disciples of Messiah, if we don't seek his face and don't learn to recognize it. It was as Moses gazed in the face of God that he was transformed and his face glowed. It's by us seeking the face of Messiah and looking at the glory of Messiah that transforms us from glory to glory. You know, in karate, you you have a white belt or brown belt or black belt would it be something if we had belts for glory? You know, what, what, what belt of glory are you? Well, I don't know. I, I hope I have some kind of a belt. I don't know what it would be. But I want to know him better. And I encourage you to, to, to increase your desire 
to see the glory of Messiah. It's a spiritual thing. It's part of the 99% world, not part of the 1% world. But we must invest in the unseen by stepping away from this world, spending time in silence, in solitude, and meditating upon the Word of God and in intimate prayer with our Creator and ask Him to reveal to us more of His glory and who He is. So it says, the light of the gospel, the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. Uh, let's learn a Greek word. Here's the word for image in Greek. It's the word ikon, and that is where we get our English word icon. You know, icons, when I grew up, were things you saw in Catholic churches and, and Orthodox churches. They were statues of saints and so on. And now they become known, uh, come to be known as the little things on your computer screen that you tap on. And the icon that you tap on represents the entire program. When you tap on the icon, it's, it's representative and is a doorway to something much greater than itself. The icon is just a symbol. It's an image that gives you a feel and the identity of the program that's going to be opened when you tap on it. And it says here that Yeshua is the icon of God. When you tap into Yeshua, you get God. And we'll see later on how God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world to himself. So the Eikon is the physical representation in the 1% world of the greatness that exists in the 99% world. Paul uses the same term, Eikon, in Colossians 1.15, when he refers to Yeshua as the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. You can't see the entire program. You can see the icon. And when you activate that icon, the program comes to life. So let's continue. In verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Yeshua, so that the life of Yeshua may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Yeshua's sake, so that the life of Yeshua also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So what is this treasure, and what are the jars of clay? Well, these bodies are the jars of clay. These bodies are containers made up of the dirt, of the clay. But these containers, these jars of clay, must be filled with something, and I guarantee you that your jar of clay is filled with something. The question is, what? The other question is, what is the capacity of your jar of clay? We are living jars of clay, which means we can grow and our capacity can increase. Or we can shrink away and our capacity diminish. One of the saddest things I witness in my life is believers whose souls have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk 
their capacity diminishes and shrinks to where they can hardly hold anything of God's glory anymore. Because they've given themselves over to darkness, to bitterness, to unforgiveness, to emotion, to um, selfishness and ego, to condemnation and judgmentalism. But we need to give ourselves over more and more to God that he can increase our capacity. But what is the thing he wants to fill us with? We're a jar of clay, but what does he want to fill us with? It's in verse 11. The life of Yeshua. So he can fill us with the life of Yeshua. Just as Yeshua was the word incarnate, he was the word of God, living and walking and speaking, we should be the word of God incarnate as well. But this takes a lot of work. We have to continue to die to self, lay down our ways, and then let his word, the word himself, Yeshua, live in us. That is what these jars of clay are for, so that we can decrease and he can increase, so we can be filled with the glory of Yeshua, the glory of God in the face of Yeshua. So when we speak, it's not just us. It's him speaking through us. And what we do... It's not just our deeds, but it's his deeds through us. He wants to live his life through us. He wants us to bear his image fully and completely. So let's let go of our ways, our bitternesses, and, um, and our desires, and allow God to replace them with his, because his come from the 99% world, the eternal world, the world that lasts. So how do people know what's inside of us? Well, there's something inside of a jar. There's a couple of ways. You can look in, or you can allow it to pour out. People are constantly looking into us. What do they see? Who do they see there? And are you allowing yourself to be poured out? When people poke holes in us, what comes out? Anger? Bitterness? Judgment or love, kindness, joy, peace? Are we constantly pouring ourselves out for others because we know there's an endless supply in that 99% world? These jars of clay are from the 1% realm, but what's inside of us should be from the 99% realm, which means they never run out because it's an eternal, eternal realm. Paul continues in verse 13, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, quote, I believed and so I spoke. Actually, in Hebrew, it's from Psalm 116, verse 10. I believed and so I will speak. So you can translate it either way. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the master, Yeshua, will raise us also with Yeshua, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There's that word glory again. He quotes Psalm 116, and as you know, if you've been listening for any time at all, when someone in the apostolic scriptures, when Yeshua speaks, and he he refers to something from the Hebrew scriptures, they'll just usually uh, I just make a statement, a quick quote. 
knowing that their audience will know the entire passage. We have chapter and verse numbers, so we can use a, a reference like John 3.16 or Deuteronomy 6.4. But uh, they did not have chapter and verse numbers, so they would quote a snippet of a passage, knowing that the audience would have the entire passage, the entire context in their minds, they would call it up. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here when he quotes this one verse out of Psalm 116. If you read Psalm 116, uh, it describes life in the 1% world. We're not going to read the entire psalm right now, but I want to read a passage from it, including verse 10. I'm going to read Psalm 116, verses 8 through 15. And then you'll get the context for what Paul is saying in this part of chapter 4. Psalm 116, starting in verse 8. He's speaking to God, for you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Now, what has Paul just been saying here in 2 Corinthians? He's saying, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to spare, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's kind of what, like, like what David is saying here in Psalm 116. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before Adonai in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. And that's the passage he quoted. I believed, therefore I spoke. And what did he speak? I am greatly afflicted, I said in my alarm. All men are liars. What shall I render to Adonai for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of Yeshua. Your translation says salvation, but Yeshua and salvation are the same word. I'm a jar of clay, hopefully holding the life of Yeshua. And here, David says, I will lift up the cup of Yeshua. And this is what Paul is referring to. And I will call upon the name of Adonai. I shall pay my vows to Adonai. In other words, I'm going to live this life that I've committed to him. I'm going to fulfill it and not take it back. I'm not my own. I bought with a price. I'm going to fulfill the vow I made to Adonai when I gave my life to him. I'm not going to take it back. I'm going to fulfill it. I shall pay my vows to Adonai. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of Adonai is the death of his godly ones. That gives you a little flavor of this psalm. A psalm that describes life in this one percent world. It's a life of suffering, life of tears. It's a life of stress, but it's a life of purpose, a life of keeping a commitment, a life where God will rescue us. But when we do finally die, our death will be precious in his eyes. It will not be forgotten. Our life will continue on after we leave this 1% world. So take some time this week and, uh, and meditate on Psalm 116. It describes all the challenges of this life in this 1% world, but all the beauty and the glory and purpose of it as well. It's a great psalm. And no wonder that was in Paul's mind as he wrote this section. So let's continue, and we'll pick it up in verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. 
So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our jar of clay, this physical body is wasting away, our inner self, the contents of the jar of clay, is being renewed day by day. That's why we can pour ourselves out and give ourselves to others and always have more to give. Now, with that said, there's a warning. You'll encounter some people in your life who are just users. They just want to take and take and take and take and take. And even though you may have plenty to give, do not allow yourself to be robbed. Just because you have an endless supply of living water to give to people doesn't mean you waste it and pour it out on the ground. It is precious, though there is an eternal supply, it is still costly stuff and extremely precious. So beware of those who would just use your time and just suck the energy and the life and the resources out of you. Because the more you give to them, you're taking time away from those who need what you have. So try not to be distracted. Try to be cautious and careful and be discerning so you recognize those who are just the ones who will use, but they never change and never benefit from what you give. So just be cautious. Don't be wasteful. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what we experience here in the 1% is just going to make the 99% all that much more wonderful. As we look not to the things that are seen, the 1% world, but to the things that are unseen, the 99% world. For the things that are seen are temporary, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. How can you make it any clearer than that? I'm going to show you a little symbol I use in my Bible when I I come to verses which compare the 1% to the 99% world, the, the physical to the spiritual. This is the symbol I use. You know, at a railroad crossing, you see a sign that's an X. It means there's a be careful here. There's a division and uh, between this side of the track and that side of the track. This track's crossing right here. And I put an X, and over here on the left, I put a P for physical. On the right, I put an S for spiritual. It's an intersection between the physical and the spiritual. And it reminds me that though my experiences are so entangled in this 1% world, I need to grow spiritually, become a spiritual man. So I also am developing senses and capacities in the 99% world. And I'm sensitive to that realm, not just to this one. The 1% world, you find religion. The 99% world, you find spirituality. In the 1% world, you find work. In the 99% world, you find rest. In the 1% world, you find confusion and emotion, and you find egotistical drive. In the 99% world, you find the mind of God and his direction. So, I encourage you, as ambassadors of Messiah, you represent his realm to this one accurately and fully with your lives. But I love that verse. For the things that are seen are transient. So close your eyes and focus on the world you can't see. 
because the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that in, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul transitions from speaking of jars of clay to tents. And it's interesting that the word for tent in Greek is the word skene. Skene. That's where we get the word skin, because tents were made from skin. And this tent is made from skin. And it is a tent. We need to recognize I live inside this tent of skin. And this tent of skin eventually wears out. And it dies. Though it was once alive, it dies. But I have a building that's permanent, one that's not transient. There's a spiritual body in store for me and for you. And if you want to know more about it, go to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where this body is described. So again, verse 1. For we know that if the tent, the skene that is our earthly home, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the spiritual, the heavens. Whenever the, the, the scriptures use the term the heavens, especially Paul in his writings, he's talking about the spiritual realm. For in this skene, this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, our spiritual dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, the Master, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Master. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That is our one single ambition in this life, to please God, not please yourself, not please others, to please him. To do that, we have to know what he wants. And secondly, we have to deny ourselves what we want if it conflicts with what he wants. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah. All of us have a judgment day ahead. And what will we do with that judgment seat so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, in this jar of clay, in this tent. What have you done? Whether it's good or evil. So in this tent, we're going to groan. And we're allowed to. And there are only two things, though, that we're allowed to groan about. So if you're groaning about one of these two things, you're okay, you're good. If you're groaning about anything else knock it off. These are the two things and only two things you're allowed to groan about. The first, longing for the spiritual world. Longing for the spiritual world. Just that, oh, 
you know, a, another death, another illness, uh, um, another tragedy, more bad news, some um, attack in the world. It's like, oh, Lord, when will your kingdom come? When will your will be done on earth as is in heaven? When will the spiritual world arrive? And we groan for that. That's okay. Because it's a longing for what's to come. The second thing you're allowed to groan about, he says, is that being burdened. We groan being burdened. And so we're allowed to groan about the burden of the physical world. Not too much, but some is okay. Because life in this world is difficult. Read Psalm 116. And Paul talks about the difficulty of living in this world. And he says, but though we have this difficulty, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because this is only the 1% world here. And the 99% world is where we invest our lives and our energy. And that's the world we look forward to. We look forward to that so we can live and endure the life here. So let's pick it up in verse, well, I want to say one more thing about the judgment seat of Messiah. Um, Yeshua talks about this. And over in Matthew 16, 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And when Yeshua said that, he was quoting Psalm 62, 12. Somehow this erroneous idea has slipped into Christianity that if we've given our life to the Lord, he's washed away our sins. It's true. And uh, he doesn't remember our sins anymore, but remember what remember means in Hebraic thought. Remember means he does not act upon them. This is how you can forgive and forget. Forgive means I'm not going to stand in judgment of what you did. And forget means I'm not going to act upon it. You can't just erase things from your memory banks. You can't do that. Of course, you can remember what they did. But when you refuse to act upon it, that's called forgetting in Hebraic thought. So God's forgiven our sins. He's uh, separate them as far as the east is from the west. Now, those things are true, but somehow that does not negate the fact that we will stand before our King, Messiah, on a judgment day, and we will give an account of everything we did in our bodies, whether good or bad, and we will be rewarded according to what we have done. Though our salvation is based entirely upon God's grace, our reward is based entirely upon our works. And God wants to reward us. And you may say, well, I'm not interested in reward. Well, God is. He wants to reward you. I mean, what is it like if you go to your children and say, listen, kids, if you'll, you'll help me clean up the yard here and get the house sorted out, I'm going to give each of you an allowance. Your kids say, ah, I don't care about allowance. But you want to give them something. You want to 
give them a supply and, and, and a reward. You want to do that. God wants us to desire reward. But we get reward by our works here in this world. We know we have to give an account for every, every word we speak. And that should scare us to death right there. But we should be filled with good works. So when we stand before him, we won't stand before him naked, as Paul referred earlier. Remember, the, in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 21, 19 or 21, it's 19. Um, John asks the messenger, the angel, says, what are these white garments? He says, these, are, these, these white garments are the righteous deeds of the holy ones, the righteous deeds. We are weaving now the garment we will wear there. So we need to be full of righteous deeds, not just for the sake of not appearing before God naked, but because we love him. A bride adorns herself for her wedding day. And a a woman may talk about how much she loves her future husband, but if she comes down that aisle dressed in raggy jeans and an old T-shirt with her hair a mess, she probably doesn't love him that much. If we love God, we want to appear before him well-dressed. And the clothing we wear are the righteous deeds, the good works we do here and now. So in the time we have, let's do the work we're given to do. And let's do it out of love for God. And also a desire to please him. And knowing that it pleases him to reward us. That makes the reward a selfless thing to pursue. So let's pick it up now in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the master, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we seem crazy, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Messiah controls us. Because we have concluded this, and underline this in your Bible, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. One has died for all, therefore all have died. If I take you out to dinner, all of you, and, um, and I, I pay for all the meals then your meal has been paid. Did you have to pay it? No, but your meal has been paid for. So it says Yeshua has died for all. Therefore, we've all died. We need to learn to live as dead people. Setting aside the old desires, setting aside the old egos, the old pride, and learn to walk in newness of life. 
because he has died for all. Therefore, God considers us all as having died. But if you don't realize that, you're going to make a scene at the restaurant because you're going to say, oh, no, 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 I'm paying for my own meal. I don't believe my meal is paid for. I need to leave more money. And that's insulting to your host. Don't insult God by continuing to live your life the way you want. Realize that because Yeshua died for all, all, including you and me, we've died. And it goes on, verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the purpose of this is so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves. This is how we're to live the redeemed life. Now, earlier I asked, what is this this, uh, gospel of the glory of Messiah? Here it is. It's based on the fact that Yeshua died for all, therefore all are dead. And verse 16 tells us what this glorious gospel of Messiah is. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't regard one another according to the 1% world. We regard one another according to the 99% world. It's not just your personal comfort I'm concerned about. It's your spiritual maturity, your walk with God. What do you need spiritually? For though we once regarded Messiah according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Think about something. When Yeshua rose from the dead, do you remember how many of his friends, his disciples, had difficulty recognizing him? Mary Magdalene was at the grave. Yeshua stands there behind her, talking to her. She thinks he's the gardener. Why didn't she recognize him? But when he spoke her name, then she recognized who he was. It's what she heard. She recognized who he was. Um, Peter and the disciples, they're fishing. They haven't caught anything. And there's Yeshua walking on the beach not that far away, and he shouts to them, you know, cast your nets on the other side, and they bring up all the fish. And at that moment, Peter's eyes are opened. It's the master, and he jumps in, he swims ashore. And when he gets there, there's a fire going. Yeshua invites the disciples to bring some of their fish, and they have breakfast together there on the shore. And of course, the big one is when, uh, on Resurrection Day, some of the apostles are walking to Emmaus. Yeshua joins them, and they don't recognize him. Here's their master. They don't recognize who he is. And it says in the King James, their eyes were holden. In other words, God supernaturally kept them from recognizing Yeshua physically. But it says as they walked and they talked with him, their hearts burned within them. Spiritually, they recognized him, but their, their, their brains were at conflict because but doesn't look like him, doesn't sound like him, but there's something under the words and in the essence of this man that we recognize. In all of these examples, God is weaning away Yeshua's friends, his disciples, 
from recognizing him in a merely physical way. This is one of the reasons why I really don't care that much for having pictures of Jesus hanging in my home and uh, having Bibles with pictures of Jesus. I want to know him spiritually. I want to recognize him spiritually because I don't know what he looks like physically. I don't want to be distracted by that. And just as God wanted to wean the apostles and the friends of Yeshua away from recognizing him in a merely physical way, he wants to do the same with us. He wants us to know him after the Spirit. So we don't know him in a physical way anymore, even though Paul says at one time we did, we don't anymore. And he's applying this also, catch this, Paul is saying, and this is how we need to know one another. Don't just look at each other physically. Don't just look at each other in terms of your personality or your abilities or your temperament. Look at one another as being a child of God. Know each other in a spiritual level. So when you meet someone you truly love, even though they may be smiling and they say everything's great, you can tell underneath something's wrong. And you can tap into that. You can minister to them and become intimate with them on a spiritual level. Let our fellowship be something more than just physical. And this is one of the, the great blessings as Beth Takun has transitioned to small groups. You know, the 1% world is all concerned about size and bigness. But the spiritual world is concerned with smallness because smallness and anonymity is the secret to spiritual greatness, spiritual power. And I've been in very few big churches, big messianic communities where there's great spiritual maturity. When you make the physical small, the spiritual gets big. And it's been such a delight to visit. uh, And we're not done. We're still... We still have several to go visiting the small Sabbath uh, home fellowships and, and seeing the great spiritual growth that's taking place. People engaging one another in conversation of the word, praying for one another specifically, sharing each week what God has done in their lives and is doing, the answers to prayers, the, the meeting of needs and uh, just the joy and the growth of the individuals in these groups. It's wonderful when we come together once a month as a big group. But the spiritual work is really being done in small groups. That's where the 99% world manifests itself, physical smallness. Do you ever wonder why Yeshua only called 12 apostles? Because of that small group, that small bit he could multiply and do great things. Just a few loaves and fishes, he could multiply and, and reach thousands. Don't ever underestimate the power of physical smallness because that is where you find spiritual greatness. And it's exciting to see what God is doing in the lives of people Beth the Coon. But he goes on. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. Now, just a little bit ago, Paul quoted Genesis 1-3, how light shined out of darkness because when God began to 
restore the creation back in Genesis 1, the first thing God did was to speak, Yehior, let there be light, and light shone out of the darkness. We're new creations, and God begins the recreation of ourselves in the same way, by letting his light shine into the darkness and shine out of it. Light is the beginning of all transformation. Paul's talking earlier about how we are being transformed by, from glory to glory. How do we do this? By beholding the glory of Messiah's face. As Moses beheld the glory of God and Moses' face shone, he picked up some of the light. So we're new creations and God recreates us the same way he recreated the world in Genesis 1. And it begins with light. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Messiah reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In, in Greek, you could just really say concile. Reconcile means we had a relationship, it was broken, and now it's reformed, it's reconciled. But the, the weight of the word here in Greek is concile. It's almost like we never had a relationship with God. We are always enemies of God, but he has consiled us to himself through Messiah. So let me read that again. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Messiah consiled us to himself and gave us, Paul says of himself and, and Timothy and Titus and others, the ministry of conciliation. That is, in Messiah, God was consiling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of conciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Messiah. Now, that's an interesting word. That word ambassadors used there is a, uh, um, used in Greek and in Latin and refers to what the Romans did. The word is prosbuo, prosbuo, and this is what would happen. When the Roman army would go in and conquer a new territory, completely subjugated the people there, and once there was uh, peace, there's no longer any fear of any retaliation, then the Senate would send some senators there. These are the prosbuo, these are the ambassadors, and the the, the, the purpose of these senators was now to come to the conquered people and tell them now how their lives are going to be different and how they will now relate to the Roman emperor. Here are the things required of them, and here are the benefits that will come to them because they are now part of the Roman Empire. Now, we know the Roman Empire was wicked, but Paul nevertheless uses this term, of himself, saying, the world has been conquered. The world has been defeated. Because when Yeshua died for all, all died. The world has been defeated. But God has sent me with a message and says, now you're part of what he's doing. He's consiled you to himself. He no longer has anything that he's counting against you. So any barriers between you and God, he says, are barriers that you put there, not him. 
So be consiled to God. Verse 20, therefore we are prosbuo, we are ambassadors for Messiah. God making his appeal through us. This is the appeal. We implore you on behalf of Messiah. Be consiled to God. Quit fighting him. Quit resisting him. Trust him. Embrace what he's done for you. He has set you free. Enjoy that freedom. He has conquered the world so that the world might know what it's like to live in the 99% realm. So stand up. Come on in. Quit thinking evil thoughts about God. And realize he loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son. So be consiled to him. He's not your enemy. Sin is your enemy. That's the thing he came to save you from. Sin is your enemy. Be consiled to God. He is your friend. Again, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Messiah. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Messiah. Be consiled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Messiah, we might become the righteousness of God. The perfect righteous one became sin, so that the sinful one might become righteous. Who makes that kind of deal? Only God does. That's how magnanimous he is. He is the beneficent one. He is Hatov. He is the good one. How in the world can a person grasp this message and still resist him? How does that happen? And yet I know people call themselves believers who still resist yielding their lives to God and obeying his commandments and doing things his way. They still want to pull and do stuff their way. How do we do that? And that's a question I ask myself when I find myself wanting to do things my way instead of his. We need to be consiled to him. He's not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. Verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There's our word, by the way, presbuo ambassador. And so I have two questions for you. There are two messages here. There's Paul's message to the world and there's Paul's message to believers. Paul's message to the world is this. Be consiled to God. Quit being suspicious of God. Quit holding him at arm's length. Quit thinking that he is your enemy, that he's come to ruin your fun and to mess up your life and to make you miserable. Quit thinking that. Quit thinking he's here to crush you because of your past sins and failures. Quit doing that. He has removed every barrier between himself and you. And again, if there's any barrier between you and God, you put it there. 
And he will bring enough misery and pain into your life to where those things are destroyed so that nothing blocks his connection with you. I remember in my early days being raised in the Baptist church, we were taught to make a little illustration of, of uh, how, how to present the gospel to others. And, and what we do, we, we draw these two cliffs, so this big chasm in between. And on the one cliff, we would put a little stick figure and we say, that's you. And over here on this cliff edge, we say, this is God. And there's this big chasm, this big division to where you can't get to him, he can't get to you. And then we would draw a cross that fills the gap. Because of the cross, we now have a bridge to get to God. Now, that illustration has been effective, and it's not entirely wrong, but it doesn't line up with what Paul's saying. What Paul says is much more dynamic. He's saying, here's the cliff with you, and here's the cliff with God. And what God did was this. There's no more chasm at all. He didn't just fill it with Yeshua. Through Yeshua, he removed it. There's nothing between you and God. All you have to do is open your heart to him. He's opened his heart to you. He's like the father of the prodigal son. From the prodigal son's father's viewpoint, there's nothing between him and his son. His son left. And he's ready to welcome him home, slaughter the fatted calf, put a new clothes on his son, and put a ring on his finger and embrace him. This is God. This is how he is with you. What's, what's keeping you? You'd rather eat the slop and sleep with the pigs? God's there just waiting for you to step across. There's no chasm there between you. But we believe these lies that there is. Quit believing lies about God. So Paul's message to the world, be consiled to God. Paul's message to believers, chapter 6, verse 1. And this is the warning I have for you, for me, for all of us at Beth Takun and believers who are hearing this teaching. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Again, one of the saddest things I know of are believers who don't believe, who have received God's grace, but they've never changed. They're as bitter and angry now as they were before. They're as selfish now as they were before. Oh, they're more religious now, and they involve themselves with more religious activities in a faith community, but they're still just as condemning, egotistical, self-centered and emotional as they were before. They received God's grace. They received it in vain. They came across to God, but they didn't change. They're trying to live in the 99% world the way they used to live in the 1% world. We need to come to God and die to our old ways and come alive to him. I hope you take time to really discuss this and meditate on it. And think about this and ask yourself, have you received God's grace in vain? And I dare say that every one of us, including myself, at least in some areas of our lives, we have received God's grace in vain. It doesn't have to stay that way. But it's up to us to begin 
to do the work of living the life that we claim we believe in. To live as believers, as children of the Father, as those who have truly been rescued by Yeshua. So, here are your discussion questions. And some, most of these are going to be pretty easy if you've been listening to the teaching. First, identify two ways people misuse the Bible. Think of examples where you have experienced this yourself. And, uh, and if you refer to people you know of who have misused the Bible, I'm going to ask you not to use names. Uh, use discretion. In chapter 4, verse 7, what is the treasure and what are the jars of clay? Number three, according to Paul, what is our message to the world? How is it different from the gospel message we are used to hearing? And number four, what are two acceptable reasons to groan other than grant goes over time, which I have not yet. And number five, what should a believer's one ambition be? What should the believer's one ambition be? And you will find this, I think, about halfway through chapter four, if I'm not mistaken. Let me make sure I'm not giving you a a wrong lead on that. Uh, About halfway through chapter five, I'm sorry. So, and make sure you focus on that and know what that is. And of course, as always, the notes and the passages I quote and other passages that I didn't are, are here in the notes, and you can download those uh, later on and print them out for your use. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, thank you so much that through our King, we can call you Father. And because you are our Father, you have sent the King. Lord, we are a blessed people, yet sometimes we walk around as if we're not. You have lavished your grace upon us, but Lord, so many times we receive it in vain because we don't change. We want everybody else to, but we don't want to do the hard work of changing ourselves and working on our own souls. So Father, please, from your love, motivate us to grow up and become the people you want us to be, the people the world needs us to be so that they can see the glow of Messiah's glory in these jars of clay. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.